0: I don't know if you guys remember, but uh, back in, I think it was 2000, if I'm getting my my dates correct, so wow, 20 plus years ago, 23 years ago, 22, 23 years ago, man, Um, but a little book was published called The Prayer of Jabez, that title ring a bell to anybody? The Prayer of Jabez, this is a book that's taken from an actual Old Testament prayer and it was written by Bruce Wilkerson, and the point is not to go into the details of the prayer nor the book itself, but to just recount some of the elements of that publication and what it was oriented around. Basically, it took this prayer of Jabez in the Old Testament, a very limited uh, part of scripture in the Old Testament, very little background information, but it was a prayer that had to do with with a man praying for God's blessing on his life, the expansion of blessing, the expansion of territory. And and the book was written in such a way to compel believers to basically learn how to effectively pray the prayer of Jabez, for that to, in some ways, become a bit of your, your spiritual discipline and practice so that you too would experience the blessings of God through this prayer that Jabez experienced. And this turned into a worldwide phenomenon. Millions and millions of copies of this book were sold. I even remember it turning into a whole, you know, Chris, Christian such section in the Christian bookstore. You know, Christian trinket section, you know. The Prayer of Jabez bookmarks and the Prayer of Jabez t-shirts and the Prayer of Jabez, you know, slippers and whatever. I mean, it just all kinds of Christian paraphernalia were produced surrounding this publication of this book. And this was one of those more contemporary examples of... A violation of a biblical interpretive principle that we major on here, and that interpretive principle is the importance of context to be able to understand what any particular passage of scripture actually means by what it says, and not just context but a misappropriation of the genre of scripture, which was it 's a narrative passage, so you you have to be very careful about taking narrative passages and, and literally turning them into a precept that you then follow. But this issue of context is so significant and was so missed in this whole phenomenon. I don't know about you, but I I mean there's a certain appeal. If if all I need to do is learn how to repeatedly recite a prayer in order to have all of this blessing in this life come to pass, kind of enticing, kind of compelling. Well, it certainly was compelling for many, many, many people. And all the while, it was pulling a passage of Scripture out of context and then using it or applying it or appropriating it or misappropriating it more accurately towards some ultimately likely self-centered end in people's motivations. This matter of context is extremely important. When we come to this section in the second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, obviously that is the case as well. It kind of goes without saying, I would, I would assume. But you come to this section toward the end of the chapter that we're going to be dealing with, not in as much detail today, but moving forward, and no longer are you just wrestling with this principle of context and understanding what Scripture means by what it says as a principle, a foundational principle for rightly understanding what the text of Scripture is teaching at any given place or point throughout the text of the Bible, Old Testament, and New Testament. But you get to this place where another sort of missiological term emerges called contextualization. Contextualization. So at the end of the chapter, we, we talked about this last time, but you, you see this familiar refrain from the Apostle Paul. I'm sure many of you have heard this before. Maybe you've even heard sermons preached on this. Maybe you've read books about this. I don't know, but it's a familiar passage. It has one of those sort of rings to it, if you will. Starting in verse twenty, we could say, "To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews; to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that it, that I might win those under the law; to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law; to the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak." And here's the here's the catchphrase. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. That particular phrase in this larger chapter, in this larger section of 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 in particular, is one of those passages of Scripture that by many has been lifted up out of its context and then deployed in ways to justify a range of ministry and missions methodologies that are suspect at best and aberrant at worst and the interesting thing about this is that it a whole a whole a whole terminology a whole sort of theory a whole sort of practice area in, in missiology or in the, the study of missions called contextualization kind of emerges from this particular passage. The idea being that, that you have to adapt your methods to, toward effectiveness in the context to which you are bringing the gospel. There's an element about contextualization that is obvious, it's practical. It's appropriate. I mean, every, every one of us practices contextualization in our lives in various spheres to one degree or another. You, you do this in your workplace. You do this where you may go to school. You do this when you visit people's homes. I mean, you, you, you sort of look around. You, know, it's, but you might call it reading the room. Right? You might call it understanding and being sensitive to other people's preferences. Whatever it might be, there's a certain amount of contextualization that is part of just functioning well and effectively in society that we all engage in. But when you apply it into the areas of ministry philosophy or missions philosophy, if it's taken to a certain extreme... No longer are you just simply trying to make sure that your approaches to ministry or your approaches to mission take reasonable account of the context in which you are serving, the languages, the, the, the social uh, priorities and mores and norms and taboos. You have, to, you have to understand that. I mean, you don't show up in, for example, a Muslim country and flaunt your Americanism and then begin sharing the gospel on the streets as though that's going to be a good thing to do. There are certain things of wisdom and prudence that are tied to this matter of contextualizing your approach to gospel witness and gospel ministry that are important and appropriate and needful. But what has often happened, both in the context of, of missions, in a foreign context, in an overseas context, as well as philosophy of church ministry here in the United States is that this, these principles of helpful contextualization slide into nothing short of what's called syncretism, where you merge or thoroughly blend truth principles of gospel witness or even gospel content you merge it with whatever the prevailing ideology, society, cultural norms, cultural priorities. You merge it completely with that. And in so doing, you completely water down and distort the core message of the gospel. You, 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 you water down or you distort the clarity of God's word in some particular area. That's syncretism in a, in a, in a nutshell. And we see this happening in our day and time over and over and over and over again. What happens in our culture is that things that mean really nothing get elevated to a place of supreme importance under the auspices of contextualizing the message in the ministry for the current culture. So, for example, things like clothing style preaching style, music style, facility and architecture style. All of these things get elevated to a premium level as a means by which we can do or be all things to all people so that by all means we might save some. And it goes so far as to say that the absence of elevating these surface kinds of things, and giving them a sense of priority in your ministry, and in your witness, and in your church philosophy of ministry, to avoid that kind of contextualization is to not be interested in actually winning people to Christ. I mean, obviously, that's the conclusion you'd have to come to. So, I'll be a little bit pejorative, but like, you know, the typical pastor and Skinny jeans and a hoodie who sits on a stool is trying to contextualize his presentation to some hipster demographic so that his message of the gospel will be more effectively received. And it's one thing to have a personal sense of style in the clothing you wear. It's an entirely different thing to say that this is what we must do. This is one of the things that we must do in order to be effective in our gospel witness. The other side could be true as well. Buttoned up, coat, even a tie. I mean, that's really, that's really the proper way to, to preach and deliver the message of the gospel. It demonstrates a sense of reverence. It demonstrates a sense of awe. It, whatever. So we can, we can err on either side of, the, of a spectrum here in this whole notion of contextualization. But at the end of the day, it takes our eyes off of the core truth of God's word about the nature of the gospel, the way in which the Lord saves people, what we're called to in our gospel witness, and the clarity of the gospel message and the clarity of scripture and the power of scripture in and of itself, apart from my skinny jeans, completely detached from my suit and tie. The Apostle Paul in this entire section is really breaking up all of these notions of preference or liberties or freedoms being a priority, being something that needs to be insisted upon, being something that is the motivating driver of not only what we do, but why we do what we do in the areas of ministry and gospel witness. The Apostle Paul is really blowing all of these notions up in this passage. Now, we, looked at, we began to look at this particular section in verses 15 to 27 last week. Of course, we've been spending an, an, a lengthy amount of time addressing this larger matter of rights. Begun, begins back in chapter 8, where there were those in Corinth who were, in a way, insisting upon their right... ...to partake of meat sacrificed to idols. It was part of their liberty in Christ... ...because truly, idols are nothing. So therefore, the food that's sacrificed to them is nothing. In other words, it doesn't carry inherently some type of curse... ...or you don't imbibe some type of sinful demonic force... ...or anything like that by eating food sacrificed to idols. An idol is nothing... Paul would say. And so there are those who were sort of priding themselves on their understanding of this truth and this reality to the exclusion of concern for fellow believers in the life of the church who were really troubled by this practice, who were still burdened by this association with idolatry and all of, of the things that surrounded idol worship in that day, largely sexual immorality being a big part of that. But the whole nature of that pagan environment was a provocation to many believers, especially some of the newer believers. So you had those that were just inconsiderate and insensitive to those and who felt it was important for them to sort of claim their rights and to live out their rights rather than to consider the laying aside of those rights. So then when you turn to chapter 9, the Apostle Paul basically adopts a certain rhetorical position of... You want to talk about rights? Let me talk to you about my rights. And he goes into this entire description about the rights of an apostle and a minister of the gospel to receive support for that work, to be paid or compensated for that work of gospel ministry. So we've dealt extensively with that entire subject. It's obviously a subject that kind of stands on its own. You can draw from other passages of scripture as well to sort of understand What the scriptures teach about remuneration, remuneration, remuneration of of those in gospel ministry as a vocation. But it's also set in this larger context as illustrative material of an illustration of the rights that he has. Rights to sustenance and support of generous provision even. And he makes this. Airtight case of this particular right in the first half of this chapter. But then we turn to chapter 9, starting in verse 15, and we get into this section where it focuses on this right being surrendered by the the Apostle Paul. The principle of of his rights being surrendered. So let's read the passage together and let's begin to kind of unpack this more as we work our way through the rest of this chapter. So again, speaking of these rights, and in particular this this right to being supported and compensated for the work of ministry, he says, "'But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel.'" For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. There in verse 24, he begins to introduce this this idea of athletic competition and the nature of training and training hard with the intent of winning. This whole section really centers around the Apostle Paul's sense of urgency and diligence and conviction and passion because he wants to win. That's the the intent here. That's That's the driving undercurrent In this section, it's about winning. In particular, it's about winning people to Christ. This is sort of a a characterization of the Apostle Paul's church planting and evangelistic ministry in the Roman Empire. Last week, we noted this passion and depth in Paul's conviction about surrendering this right. Back in verse 12, he mentions the fact that he wasn't going to use this right. He surrenders this right. I've not not made use of this right, but I endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. So he introduces this principle that there's an obstacle that if I were to exercise this particular right, it would raise up something that would serve as a barrier to the effective advancement of the gospel. So I don't want to be anywhere close to that kind of error. I won't do anything to put some kind of hindrance or obstacle in the way of the gospel's progress. But then here in verse 15, he kind of restates this refusal to make use of this right. It is a right. He's argued for it. He's defended it carefully and effectively. But it's something that he refuses to exercise. And he he refuses to exercise it in a way that has deep conviction around it. There is no way, in fact, I'd rather die than give up my ground for boasting. So there's some strategic advantage that he's also dealing with. That in some way, by him taking money for his work of ministry and gospel proclamation in Corinth somehow that would diminish the effectiveness of his gospel message. Somehow that would get in the way of the clear reception of the gospel is the idea. Somehow it would, it would diminish a strategic advantage that he's trying to hold on to. And so we raised this question last week. What is this all about? Why is he having such a deep conviction conveyed here that he'd rather die than take money and surrender his right or his ground for boasting, for bringing the gospel to them, what he says, free of charge. The other thing we mentioned last week is that this is not just something that took place in Corinth, but this was kind of a pattern for his, his apostolic ministry in other places. We referenced what he did in Corinth from Acts chapter 18, the backstory there. But then in 1 Thessalonians, you see a similar, a similar allusion to this, where they worked night and day. They didn't want to become a burden to anyone there. This is kind of a pattern for him. And what was that all about? Well, we referenced last week the, the possibility of this patronage system that was prevalent in ancient, the ancient Roman Empire in the first century. This patronage system was characterized well by a man named Peter Marshall who wrote a book entitled Enmity in Corinth, Social Conventions in Paul's Relations with the Corinthians. And here's what he says. He says, The offer of a gift constituted an offer of friendship. While in theory it was voluntary and disinterested, it was intended to place the recipient under an obligation to repay. Acceptance was conditional. The recipient must respond with a counter gift or service immediately or at some later time. And numerous and popular conventions governed the behavior of both benefactor and recipient. People of high status used their wealth not only to cater for their social and economic needs, but to form alliances, to secure power as a form of security and protection against personal and political enemies. So there was this whole system in place that he could have been sort of unwittingly brought into where he gets compensated, someone brings him a gift for his effective ministry among them, but it comes with strings attached. And he didn't want that obstacle to be placed in front of anyone where people would begin to say that, well, he's just, he's just doing it this way because he's really owned by this patron who provided these funds for him. He's functioning in a way that is a clear, you know, reference point to someone who's supporting him. He's being controlled by a benefactor. He certainly didn't want to have that be the case or that be the accusation of him. But there's much more here. This is what I want to dig into a little bit today. There's much more here that is is tied to these convictions that the Apostle Paul is articulating, the intensity of his conviction here. And and it's, it's elements of his convictions that should be mirrored in us. This is what I want to unpack for us today. That when we see the Apostle Paul articulating his right as an apostle, and as a minister of the gospel, to be duly compensated for his work of ministry, it might be easy for us to sort of pass over that and maybe check out, particularly if you are not in gospel ministry. Maybe you, it's helpful to kind of understand a little bit about this, but, but certainly what is the application point? How do, we, how do we think about this in terms of our personal convictions and our personal sanctification? Well, as he moves on in his discussion here and he he begins to elucidate more about the nature of this deep and profound conviction that he has about refusing to exercise this right, we begin to see elements of the Apostle Paul's conviction that should be characteristic of our conviction as well. And that's what I want to kind of draw out for us today. So notice first that that in addition to the possibility of, of Paul's concern about some form of, of, a, of a patronage kind of situation, of a uh, you know, tit-for-tat kind of financial arrangement that was prevalent in that day, notice that he also kind of identifies or speaks of an inherent obligation within his call to gospel ministry. Like, there is something that is inherent in the nature of his call that fully and thoroughly obligates him in these ways. Look at verses, this is really found in verse 16 to 17, but but let's start with verse 16. He says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Let me amplify that. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Cursed am I if I don't do this. There is is something inherent in his call that places upon him an intense obligation for this ministry. Well, what is it? Well, it starts with the the fact that he was called by God's sovereign grace. This This is a reference to Paul's continual reflection upon God's sovereign, magnanimous grace that was given to him. If you turn to Galatians chapter 1, you can see a little bit of a testimony of this. This is what the Apostle Paul thoroughly understood, and it wasn't just something that he intellectually assented to and sort of left it there in the archives. Like, yes, I understand that now, Next, no. This was something that stayed with him. It, it, it intensified the burning passion of his heart to engage in ministry in ways that were characterized by willing sacrifice and surrender of his rights. Galatians one, chapters uh, chapter excuse me, Galatians chapter one, verse, starting in verse eleven, he says, "For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that I, that was preached by me is not man's gospel." For I did not receive it from any man, nor as I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Harkening back to Acts chapter 9. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was not on some kind of track toward following Christ. Verse 14, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. My religious convictions were firmly settled in Judaism. Not in this new covenant, new thing from Jesus. Verse 15, But when he, listen to this, who had set me apart before I was born... And who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. This experience of God's sovereign, unmerited, manifold favor, he never got over it. It fueled his passion and his conviction for ministry and sacrificial ministry to boot. In other words, what he's saying here is, I am well aware of this fact. I had absolutely nothing to do with my call. Nothing to do with my call to salvation. I was headed to persecute Christians. I was firmly entrenched in my Judaistic background and belief. I was excelling in it. I was characterized by full-on zealotry. That's my profile. I had nothing to do with this call to salvation, and I certainly had nothing to do with Christ commissioning me to be an apostle to the Gentiles. This was all of grace. Every bit of grace. In no way... Does his diligent and fruitful labor in preaching the gospel and discipling the Corinthians give him some ground for boasting? Not at all. He's under obligation because of this magnanimous grace that he didn't deserve. He refers to this same kind of idea at the end of 1 Corinthians. We've looked at this numerous times before throughout our study. In verse 9 of chapter 15, he says, For I am the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle. This should not have happened. Because I persecuted the church of God. And then in verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. Listen to this. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then It was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This this work of sovereign grace, both to call him to salvation out of his murderous activities and his firmly entrenched legalistic Judaism into grace and into complete dependence upon the work of God in Christ Jesus for salvation was nothing short of God's Kind and sovereign intention toward him that he had nothing to do with. And that places upon him an intense conviction about obligation. That I'm going to work harder than anyone at this, he says. I don't need some kind of outside motivation to do what I do. Certainly not because I'm special. I'm the least of all the apostles. Certainly not because I have some unique gift or talent. You go back into the letter of 1 Corinthians, characterized as weak. I wasn't a a, a well-versed orator. My, My speech was stuttered. I had weaknesses and infirmities physically. I was nothing to look at. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. He was saved and called and commissioned purely by the sovereign grace of God. Here's the application principle. It's probably obvious at this point. The deeper our understanding of God's immeasurable grace grows, the greater our sense of obligation toward diligent faithfulness intensifies and expands. We're not motivated if we really grow in our understanding, our depth of understanding of the nature and depth and extent and breadth and height of God's love in Christ Jesus and His grace toward us, the deeper we understand that, the more we are obligated to just serve and work and work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And you and I both know that when we find ourselves requiring or becoming dependent upon other motivations, we are drying up inside and we are sliding into legalistic Phariseeism where we can begin to point to all of the things that we're doing for the Lord. We want to be the kind of people that have a depth of understanding and gratitude for the sheer Unmerited sovereign grace of God that has been lavished upon us, completely contrary to anything we deserved, that then wells up in us a sense of I, there's nothing else I can do here. Woe to me if I don't walk in faithfulness. Woe to me if I don't do what I've been called to do by God's grace. This is a, a depth of motivation that you can live an entire Christian life on. This will sustain the faithful believer through any and every trial in steadfast commitment and conviction to the things of God. An understanding of the nature of God's gracious and sovereign call to salvation. And then Him gifting us for various areas of ministry. Providing us opportunities for service in the gospel and the church. His magnanimous grace. So, He's called by God's sovereign grace. Drives Him. But He's also compelled by faithful stewardship. Stewardship. This is kind of the other side of that. He says in verse 17, For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. In other words, I had nothing to do with this, but I have been given a stewardship. And I'm going to steward what I've been given faithfully. You may recall how Paul already made this argument back in chapter 4 when he was dealing with the Corinthians sort of petty factions that sort of centered around their... There's shallow affinity for various leaders in the church, the Apostle Paul being one, Apollos being the other more prominent named leader that they were saying, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos and I'm of Cephas and I'm of Christ, that whole thing back in chapter 1. Of course, the Apostle Paul sort of deals with that whole matter for the better part of four chapters. But then he sums up this whole rebuke, if you will, in chapter 4, verse 1, when he says, this is how one should regard us. I mean, you want to understand who we are? You regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. And that's it. Nothing else. Nothing more. So Paul understood that he was a trophy of God's immeasurable grace. And he's merely been given a stewardship. And it's like what Peter said to Jesus, where will we go? You have the words of life. What else can I do here but preach the gospel? Fulfill this call. Execute this stewardship with extreme diligence. With unmatched passion and conviction. And with an overwhelming willingness to sacrifice and surrender whatever rights I may have. There's no glory or no grounds for boasting when I've been given something I absolutely do not deserve and called to something I absolutely did not earn. I don't brag about the fact that God was gracious to me, so therefore I live a holy life. Look how awesome it is that God decided to be gracious to me, and so therefore, watch how active I'm going to be in living out my Christian life. It's not a ground for boasting. But it is a motivation for faithfulness. It does lay upon us an intensity of of obligation that motivates us toward faithful stewardship of all that God has done and all that God has provided in Christ. So, again, what is Paul's, what is driving this intense passion and conviction about rights and freedoms that the Apostle Paul's articulating here? Well certainly it is God's sovereign call the inherent obligation of this call as well but it's also the inherent reward and in, of willing sacrifice for gospel blessing the inherent reward for willing sacrifice to see gospel blessings in other words, just in the same way that there's inherent obligation in God's sovereign grace in calling us, there's inherent reward. It's built in, in other words. Inherent reward in being willing to sacrifice to see the blessings of the gospel borne out. It's, it's in the soup, you might say. It's inherent to it. Verse 18. What then is my reward, he says? Then in my preaching... I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. My reward is in the sacrifice, preaching free of charge, not claiming my right, but laying it down. That The reward is inherent in that. It's kind of counterintuitive, but it's the nature of the Christian life, is it not? We talked about this a little bit last week. We've been talking about this in our study of Matthew. Come, follow me. By the way, take up your cross. Be willing to die. Know that you're blessed when you're persecuted for my namesake. You're blessed when people hurl all kinds of insults against you because of me. That's the call of Christ. Same kind of principle is being worked out here just in the context of this whole discussion about rights being claimed and insisted upon versus being willingly given up. There is inherent in our willingness to sacrifice our rights this this participation, this reward of participating in the work of the gospel and seeing the fruit of it borne out and blessing people with this sovereign grace. That we are so motivated by. It's all built into the work of God in us, in His people. His obligation to fulfill His calling is based upon God's sovereign grace. That's clear. We've just talked about that. But here, He's emphasizing the complete absence of obligation that is based on anything He received from the Corinthians. No one is his patron. He owes no one any special favors based upon their financial support of his ministry. That's sort of the material side of the equation here. But it runs much deeper for Paul because he's willing to freely surrender his right, this right to support, because it carries with it this profound reward of knowing he did not do anything to hinder the clear proclamation of the gospel. There is blessing in knowing that you are just merely participating in the advancement of the gospel. And so rich was this blessing that he understood in the same way that he understood the depths of God's grace and it drove him toward obligation and stewardship. So rich was his understanding of this inherent blessing of gospel ministry that to to lay something down for the advancement of the gospel is the reward. That he surrendered not only his right to compensation, but he freely, listen to this, we've been talking about this, he freely made himself a servant of all. That's what verse 19 says. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. The very nature, the very essence of the kind of freedom that the Apostle Paul is speaking about, it manifests itself in the most vivid form by freely giving up the freedom, by freely and willingly laying it down. But he goes even further. He doesn't just give up the freedom, but he makes himself a slave. That's the literal translation here. I've made myself a servant, he says. A dulo'o. It literally means to enslave oneself. He he freely and willingly and happily enslaved himself to others so that he might win them to Christ. When you think about the nature of Paul's motivation here that he's articulating, when you sort of blow it up into your field of vision, the sovereign unmerited favor of God to save you. Like, you did nothing to deserve it. You were not on the path to get it. You weren't going to end up there on your own someday if you just had a little more time. All of us, like the Apostle Paul, were enemies of God in our lostness. And he lavished upon us his sovereign grace. When you blow that up into your field of vision, you begin to see that that God has done something so enormous in granting to you salvation in Christ and then giving you means to understand His Word and apply it to your life and work out your salvation with fear and trembling, and then giving you the seal of His Spirit that also empowers you to work of ministry, you put all of that in front of you And you're motivated with intense obligation. But then, knowing that the gospel and all of the blessings of its advancement that come when people know Christ in this way, compels you to lay down whatever rights you may have in Christ, you are all the more compelled toward the kind of sacrifice that says, whatever I have to do. If I have to make myself a slave to everybody, that's what I'll do. This is, this is a model of ministry that we need to hold up in front of us. It's a, it's a somewhat of a subtle distinction that we need to, need to kind of work through in our hearts as we reflect on this. It is true that there are times and seasons in our Christian walk where we just need to do what we know we need to do. Whether we feel it or not, whether there's strong, deep, passionate conviction or not, obedience and faithfulness to the Lord is its own reward. It's its own protection. However, to continue with just a sense of raw duty, as the characteristic of our motivation for Christian living, it's not sustainable. It is not sustainable for any believer. If we are motivated simply by our understanding of the duties and obligations for obedience that are laid before us, and we just step day by day in them and check the boxes and check the boxes and check the boxes, I can promise you, you will wear out. But if you and I cultivate continuously this understanding of God's sovereign grace in giving us life in Christ, we did not deserve it. We did nothing to earn it. If we reflect on that routinely, if we seek the Lord in prayer and and passionate pursuit of deeper understanding of this, I can promise you that is fuel for obedience. It is fuel for faithfulness. It is fuel for joy in the midst of any and every trial that may come your way because you're being faithful to the gospel. We talk about things like living the Christian life in our own strength. That's kind of what we're talking about here. Now, love in the Apostle Paul, he's well, well advanced in his apostolic ministry. He has seen many, many miracles performed at his hands through the gift of God and the confirmation of his apostolic ministry through signs and wonders. He has seen churches planted. He has seen people being saved out of raw, unadulterated uh, paganism and brought into the light of Christ. He, He has seen amazing works of God. And yet we find him in Philippians saying, I want to know Christ. And the power of his resurrection. He's still, after all of this work, and after all of this usefulness, and after all of this manifest giftedness, and after seeing all of these people come to Christ, and all these churches planted on these missionary journeys, he is still saying, I want to know him. This this is the point of application for us. Yes, there are times when we must just be faithful and do what we know we're called to do, whether we feel like it or not, whether we have passion behind it or not. Yes, be faithful, obey, trust the Lord. But man, do we not need to cultivate and renew in our hearts and our minds and remind ourselves of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus purely by His grace? and not based upon anything we've done to deserve it. And then He's called us into this work of ministry. He's given us a stewardship that we might be faithful evangelists who take this message of of saving hope in Christ to the nations. He's empowered us by His Spirit to live godly lives and to know what to say in the right moment. He's given us the power of His Spirit, the illuminating work of His Spirit to look into the Word of God and to understand what it means and then to know how to apply it to our lives and to work it out faithfully as we grow and mature. He's provided all these things for us and He's calling us to not be characterized by those who are trying to lay hold of what we are entitled to, to cling to what is rightfully ours but to gladly lay it all down if it means the advancement of this work of the gospel. What else am I going to do, he would say, except make myself a servant of all. So when you think of it, this context, and you begin to move into the descriptive nature of this work, you begin to see that this has to be about more than making sure we wear clothes that people will think are cool or hip or whatever. This has to be about more than just making sure that our music style is appealing to pop culture. When he begins to talk about him me becoming a slave to all, Example, to the Jew, I became as a Jew. Example, to one under the law, I became as one under the law. To the weak, I became as the weak. It has to be about something more than just style, right? Well, this is what we're going to unpack as we get together next time. What does it mean to make yourself a slave to all such that you would, for example, in a context of... Judaism become as a Jew. In the context of paganism or the Gentile world, you would become in some way like a pagan. What does that look like? How do we walk in faithfulness in our gospel witness in a fallen and corrupt world? How do we enter into the corridors of abject paganism with the message and light of the gospel and not water it down and make it syncretistic so that we're trying to build some kind of bridge toward you know, relationship, like we're trying to manipulate them into the kingdom. Let me show you how relevant I am. Let me talk to you about how much I know about your religion so that you respect me. All these different things that motivate people to try to take on these, these methods and these approaches of contextualization as though somehow the work of God's grace is not ultimately and dependently a sovereign work. How do we become like this or like that and yet walk in faithfulness with our gospel witness? So that we can be characterized by this athlete who runs a race, who boxes, who trains and disciplines himself so that he might win and not be disqualified. That's where we're going. So stay tuned. Let's pray.